Amen. We'll go ahead and dismiss our children to kids' church this morning. I don't know what we're going to do whenever we no longer have Lachlan for comic relief. Whenever he outgrows. It's my prayer this morning that we would indeed turn our eyes upon Jesus. The allure of this world is great. The things that this world offers us is indeed great. The things that this world offers us is tempting. Uh, it is desirable. The scripture tells us that, that the desires of the flesh, that sin, is enticing and it is, it is alluring and, and it is enjoyable for a time. But in the end, it bites like a serpent. Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be reading verses 14, 15, and 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14, 15, and 16. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. God, as we see the descent of Judas, we see the fateful decision that was made to betray the Christ. Or may we be honest and see ourselves in this passage. Or may we may we see, but by the grace of God, there go I. God, I pray that we would not all succumb to the allure of this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that whenever you leave this place today, that you would love the world that is to come greater than the world that we live in today. The descent of Judas is something that, that has perplexed scholars and theologians for thousands and thousands of years. The debate of whether or not Judas was ever truly a disciple, whether or not Judas was, was predestined to be the, the son of perdition, as John calls him, whether or not Judas ever had a choice, whether or not uh, uh, Judas was, was ordained to be the betrayer uh, is, is a question that has been... Uh, debated on all sides of theology uh, for thousands of years. We're not going to solve that debate here this morning. What we will do is we will look at Judas and we'll draw comparisons to ourselves. You know, the world tells us that there's a way that we should handle certain situations. The world tells us that there's a way that we should live our life. The world tells us 
that, that, there, is a, that there is a wisdom, that there is something to, to be gained from doing things in, in a certain way. Uh, when I was a young kid, probably seven or eight, nine or ten, I uh, don't remember exactly how old, uh, but uh, I got really mad at one of my friends. Uh, has, has anybody ever gotten mad at, at, at one of your friends? I mean, I mean, so mad, like like uh, spitting nails. Uh, you 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 could you could like like punch him in the face. I mean, I mean, really, really mad. Well, I had a I had a friend that lived two houses down from us, and growing up, we were best friends. I mean, we, we got in trouble together, we, we played in the woods together, uh, we, you know, we, got, you know, we played in the ditch together, you know, that, that's what little boys do, they play in the woods and, and ditch and find mud, and, 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 and we, we, were, we were thick as thieves, and this, this kid's name was Mikey Mahoney, and, and everybody has a Mikey Mahoney friend in their life, and, and, and you, you can't make that name up. You know, I can't, I can't give him a better name, but his name was Mikey Mahoney. And one day I got so mad at Mikey that, that I was, I was going to get back at Mikey. I was going to seek revenge because that's what the world tells us to do. That, that, that whenever you get mad at someone or whenever, whenever the, the things don't go your way, that you do whatever you can to get back at them. You do whatever you can so that you can even the score. So, Mikey had a tire swing hanging on a sycamore tree in the back of his yard. And he loved to play on that tire swing, so I said, I'll fix Mikey. So I climbed up into that sycamore tree, and I had the tire swing around one, one arm, and I'm climbing up this tree. And, you know, to a, to a kid, I'm, I'm 20, 30 feet up in this tree. Now, I was probably only about 8 or 10 feet up in the tree. But, but I was way up there. And so I, I, I took this tire swing, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to tie it up in the tree so that Mikey can't play on his tire swing. I'm going to get back at it. So I'm climbing up this tree, and I've got this tire swing. And, and my, my brother is down. He's down at the bottom, and my friend's down at the bottom. And, and they're watching me. And I don't know if they're laughing at me because I'm an idiot or they're egging me on. I don't remember all that. But I'm, I'm climbing up this tree. And so I'm, I'm, I'm tying this tree up in the, this tire swing up in the tree. And I go to pull the rope really tight. And as I go to pull the rope really tight, the rope breaks. And all of my momentum is going back. And so I go back. And as I fall, I'm bouncing off of branches on the way down, and I hit the ground, and I am out cold, and my friend goes running back to the house, and he says, Miss Angie, Miss Angie, Preston's dead, <laughs> and she comes running back over to where we were, and, and she sees me and brings me, you know, to the hospital or whatever, and I ended up, you know, breaking my wrist or what have you, but I was fine, but, you know, when we seek to do things like the world, there are certain consequences. And I want us to understand that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Let's look at who Judas was. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. 
one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot. Who was Judas? Judas was one of Jesus' twelve chosen disciples. As Jesus began his earthly ministry, he began to call men to follow him. And he called, he met Peter and Andrew on the side of the Sea of Galilee, and he called them to follow him. He met Matthew the publican, and he called him to follow him. He met James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and he called him to follow him. He met Judas, a native of Judea, and he called him, Judas, to come and follow after Jesus. And Judas left his life and began following Jesus. And so I don't want us to vilify Judas so quickly because Judas, I believe, began following Jesus with the same sincerity and with the same beliefs and with the same devotion that Peter and James and John and all of the other disciples, that Judas began following Jesus and began desiring to, to, to follow the Messiah and believe Jesus to be the Messiah and followed after him and served him. And Judas watched as Jesus performed miracle after miracle. And whenever Jesus turned the five loaves of bread into two fish, Judas was there passing out the bread and the, and the fish. Judas was one of the disciples who gathered up the 12 baskets full. Judas was in the boat when Jesus said, be still, and the storm stopped. Judas was in the boat when Jesus was walking upon the water, and Peter got out of the boat and walked as well. Judas was there when Jesus called Lazarus from the grave. We know Judas was there when Jesus rose from the grave. And so, I want us to understand who Judas was. He was one of Jesus' chosen disciples. Of all of the disciples, Judas was probably the most educated of all the disciples. That means he was probably the most wealthy of all the disciples because his parents had means to educate him. Judas wasn't from a, an obscure town in Capernaum, an obscure town in Galilee, but Judas was from a place called Iscaria, which is near and in the region of Judea, not outside of Judea like, like the other disciples. But Judas was probably a well-educated, uh, probably of all of the disciples, the most wealthy, save probably Matthew. Judas, like all the other disciples, was looking forward to the reign of Christ because he believed that the Messiah, like all the other disciples believed, that the Messiah would come and he would be a political and a military Messiah. Let me call your attention. Let me call your attention to Matthew chapter 20 and verse 21. Because it is not Judas who asked this, but it is the sons of Zebedee. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 21. Let's start in verse 20, I'm sorry. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. Now the sons of Zebedee are James and John. James and John. John the beloved disciple. John the author of the fourth gospel. John the author of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. John the one who was with Mary at the cross. That John. 
the John that, that became the patriarch of the church. And this is what is asked in Matthew chapter 21. He said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit on your right hand and one on your left hand. Because the disciples, as well as many followers, believed the Messiah to be a military a political Messiah, one who would deliver Israel from bondage, one who would deliver Israel from the captivity of Rome. And so Judas was no different. He began following Jesus, thinking that, that as Jesus came into his kingdom, as Jesus came into to his authority, that, that Jesus would begin to reign and he would have power and he would have, he would have money and he would have influence. And who would benefit from that? Well, his followers. If a new king comes into power, then his friends are going to be the ones that benefit him, right? I mean, whenever, whenever January 20th, right? That's an inauguration day? January 20th. On January 20th, whenever President-elect Trump takes office, Chances are, there's a lot of people that are in the cabinet now that are going to be looking for a job. And there's a lot of people that don't have a job that are going to get a job. A lot of people that, that, are, going to be, that are going to be assigned and appointed to cabinet positions. Why? Because when a new administration comes in, they bring their people with them, right? Well, if you believe Jesus to be the Messiah, if you believe Jesus to be the one who's going to, to throw off the, the oppression and the, the, the power of the Roman government and usher in a new kingdom. In fact, what was said of the angels, Behold, there is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, and the prophecy said that, that that child, that babe that was born, would be the king of Israel. And they believed in the prophecy, the Davidic, uh, the Davidic covenant, that, that Christ would sit on the throne of David. And so they believed it to be an earthly kingdom. And if, if, if Jesus is going to come into his kingdom, who's he going to appoint to be his cabinet? His friends, his followers, his loyal disciples. Judas believed with all the other disciples that Jesus would reign and that subsequently he would be rewarded. The difference is their reward was not an earthly reward. And Judas, I believe, was, was in love with this world. I want to point out to you that no earthly circumstance was going to prohibit the providence of God. I want to call your attention back to verse here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 5. Matthew chapter 26, verse 5. The chief priests and the elders, they got together and they made this decision. Look at verse 5. But they were saying that, that they were going to plot and kill Jesus in verse 4. And then verse 5 they say, but not during the festival lest a riot occur. Remember, Jesus had just entered into the triumphal entry uh, just a few days before, and this was the week leading up to Passover. This was the week of the festival. It was a week-long celebration, and the elders and the chief priests said, 
We want to arrest Jesus. We want to seize him. We want to, to do away with him, but not during the festival. However, look at the text, Matthew chapter 26, verse 18. Jesus had said, my time is at hand. He said, go into the city, a certain man, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Jesus understood that the time for him to be offered up as a sacrifice was at hand. I want us to point I want to point out to you the sovereignty and the providence of God during this. Now the chief priests and elders had already made up their mind we're not going to arrest Jesus. We are not going to pursue anything anymore because we fear the crowd. We fear the, the multitude that have just said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they had already made up their mind, we're not going to arrest Jesus. And then here in Matthew chapter 26, Judas had made up his mind that he was going to betray Jesus. Do you see the sovereignty and the providence of God that had nothing to do with what man had already decided? The elders had resigned themselves that they could not arrest Jesus, and even Judas's betrayal was ordained by God. If you look back through the Gospels, Jesus had made, in John chapter 6, Jesus had made several statements in way back in the early part of John that Jesus had said, one of you will betray me. We see this same statement in, in just a few days, or I'm sorry, just a few hours later at the Last Supper where Jesus points out that one of you has already betrayed me. Jesus is aware of this. Jesus knows this long before it ever takes place. The betrayal of Jesus was something that was, was foreordained by God. Now, I want to point out to you that this descent into wickedness is a gradual descent. Whenever Judas became a disciple, Judas didn't become a disciple and said, you know what, I'm going to. I'm going to trick this guy. This guy thinks I'm going to be his buddy. This guy thinks I'm going to be his friend. This guy thinks I'm going to be a faithful follower. And I'll follow him and I'll walk with him and I'll do what he needs me to do. And I'll take care of the, the money and, and, and I'll do all that. And then right before, right before he's about to enter into his kingdom, right before he's about to usher in his, his, grand, his grand entrance, I'm going to betray him and I'm going to backstab him. No. Judas began as loyal and as devoted as all the other disciples. His descent into wickedness was a gradual one. And I want to point out that the descent into wickedness is not reserved for the wicked and the evil. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. The psalmist begins... The whole book of Psalms, and it says this. It says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. I want to point out the transition. Do you notice it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That, that, there is a gradual transition. The idea is that initially, 
you're walking through the city courts. You're walking through the square. You're walking through the marketplace. And you, you casually interact with those who are, who are doing wickedness and those who are living in a way that is ungodly. And then over time, you no longer just casually walk amongst them, but you stand and linger a little bit longer. And the conversation grows more in depth. And then over time, you are no longer walking amongst the market, amongst the city square. You're no longer standing, engaging conversation, but eventually, you're seated with them. And you become one of them. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor sit in the seat of sinners. I'm sorry, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. There is a transition. The allure of this world is much the same, church. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel. It's in the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 11. I want to point out to you, not only is the descent into wickedness gradual, but the descent into wickedness is not reserved for the wicked. David, King David. This is how God describes David. God describes David as a man after my own heart. Whenever, whenever Samuel anointed David as the king of Israel, he anointed him because of his heart, because of his devotion, because of his, his faith. And so David was not a man of wickedness, but rather David was a man of, of piety. David was a man of holiness. David was a man who loved the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul. And in fact, David would be the one through whom God would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And through the line of David, we would also see Christ come. So David is not a wicked man, but I want us to see how the allure of this world and the descent into wickedness is not reserved for the wicked. It tells us in chapter 11 that it happened in the springtime, in the spring, at time when kings would go to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. David had convinced himself that he deserved a break that he had been at war for years and years and years, and that he deserved a break, and so he was going to stay back in Jerusalem while he sent his troops to battle. David did deserve a break. David was the king. It was his, it was his prerogative if he wanted to stay home. David gave himself to idleness. Look at the next passage. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed. So it's already nighttime. David has been asleep or he's been in bed. He's been relaxing. He's now bored. He has now succumbed to idleness. Why? Because what should he have been doing? He should have been in battle. He should have been with his troops. He should have been leading his country. But what was he doing? He was giving himself to idleness. And he was bored. And he woke up with nothing to do. 
So he goes up on the roof of his palace. Look at verse 2. He, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. And the scripture tells us that David gave in to the lust of his eyes. He saw something and he wanted it. Do you see the gradual ascent? David didn't stay home from battle saying, you know what, I'm going to stay home so that I can have an illicit affair on my rooftop one day. That's not why David stayed home. David stayed home because he had convinced himself that he deserved it. He was tired. He needed a break. He needed a vacation. And he gave himself to idleness. It's a gradual ascent. David began walking in the counsel of the wicked. He began standing in the way of sinners. And as the lust of his eyes gave forth, verse 3, So David sent and inquired about this woman. And one said, Is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's soldiers, one of David's mighty men, Uriah the Hittite? See, by this point, David is already sitting in the seat of scoffers. He's already made up his mind. Verse 4. Then David sent a messenger and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. David, godly man, man after God's own heart, had fallen into the lure of this world. Church, but by the grace of God, there go I. But by the grace of God, there go you. I want us to understand the allure of this world and the descent into wickedness is gradual. And it is not reserved for the wicked. I believe that Judas, because of the teaching of Jesus, had become aware that Jesus' Messiahship, that Jesus' authority, that Jesus' reign was not a political reign. I believe that Judas became aware of the truth about Jesus as the Messiah, that he was to reign and usher in a spiritual kingdom. And Judas said, wait a second, I signed up for this, not for spiritual rewards, but for the rewards here on this earth. He said, well, preacher, how do you come to this conclusion? Go with me, if you will, to the book of John. To the book of John, chapter 12. And this is how I came to this conclusion. We saw earlier in this passage, whenever the jar of perfume was shattered and anointed at the feet of Jesus that Matthew told us that all of the disciples began to complain and grumble. John's gospel gives us a little bit clearer insight. Look at John chapter 12. Look at John chapter 12, verse 4, 5, and 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who had intended to betray him, said this, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Verse 6 says, Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box. And he used to pilfer what was put into it. 
I believe that Jesus, I believe that Judas understood. I believe that Judas understood the nature of Christ's kingdom by this point. And I believe that Judas said, I want rewards here in this world more than I want the rewards in the world to come. Judas became aware of Jesus' messiahship and his lust for money, his lust for power, his lust for this world gradually took hold of his heart. And I think it's very interesting that in Matthew chapter 26, Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, 30 shekels. That was approximately 120 denarii, about twenty to $25,000. You say, preacher, why is that significant? Because in Exodus, we're given the price of a slave. And the price of a slave is 30 pieces of silver. Isn't it interesting that the king of glory was sold for the very price of a slave? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. It says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he appeared in the form of a man, let me turn to it so I don't misquote it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8. Have this attitude which is in you that is also in Christ Jesus, who although exists in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of what? A bondservant, a slave. And being made in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death upon a cross. Jesus knew Judas would betray him. Jesus knew that the lust of this world would be too much for Judas. Jesus knew all this and called him anyway and loved him anyway and served him anyway. He gave us a picture of humility, did Jesus. Judas sells Jesus for the price of a slave. Judas had learned, interestingly enough, Judas had learned to cover his heart well. I believe, church, that there are some of us here this morning that have made the descent into wickedness. We have allowed the allure of this world to entice us we have gone after the lust of this world. We have gone after money. We have gone after fame. We have gone after influence. We have gone after approval. We have gone after the love of men rather than the love of God. We have sought after this world, but we have covered our heart well, just like Judas. And all of our peers and all of our friends have no clue the wickedness and the deceitfulness that is in our hearts. In fact, in just a few verses, as we get into Matthew and we look at the Lord's Supper, we look at the Last Supper, and all of the disciples are gathered there together, and Judas is as well, and Jesus makes the statement, one of you has already betrayed me. They didn't immediately look at Judas, and they didn't say, we know it's you. Even when Jesus made the statement, the one whom I'm dipping my bread with, it is him who is deceived. Jesus tells them who it is. And they don't get it. 
Why? Because Jesus had co- or Judas had covered his heart well. Now I believe what we have learned to do in American Christianity is we have learned to cover our heart. We've learned to live in such a way that nobody knows that we're liars. That we've learned to live in such a way that nobody sees the deceitfulness and the wickedness that is within my own heart. The scripture tells us the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth. While our peers may not know. While your spouse may not know. While your pastor may not know. Your Lord does. Judas had covered his heart well. None of the disciples knew. None of the disciples knew that in John chapter 20, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 26, that Judas had already made up his mind. And whenever he left, that he went straight to the chief priests and the elders and said, what's it going to cost? I understand that that, that the path that this Jesus is on is not going to give me any fame, not going to give me any money, not going to give me anything that that I bargained for. I want what's coming to me. Give me money. And they said, we'll pay you the price of a slave. And he said, I'll take it. And he began to seek an opportunity to betray Jesus. None of the disciples knew his heart. Church, and I am fearful that we have covered our hearts so well that we have deceived ourselves to believe that we are his disciples. You may have hidden your heart from men, but God sees the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it tells us that God sees not as man sees. That God sees the heart. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 tells us this. It says that the heart above all else is more deceitful than anything and is desperately sick. Who can know? Church, the the cruel reality is this. The descent into wickedness is gradual. And it's not reserved. For the wicked. You can hide your heart well, but the only cure for wickedness is the blood of the Savior. The only cure for the wicked, deceitful heart is not more obedience. It's not more faith, more devoutness. It's not not a longer quiet time. It's not more prayers. It's not more Bible readings or Bible studies. It's not a bigger offering or more missions. All that does is cover the deceitfulness of our heart. The only cure for a wicked heart is the blood of the Savior. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isaiah says, Though your sin be as scarlet, he will make it as white as snow. And it is not because of something that we have done, 
But when Christ hung on the cross, the scripture tells us that he paid the penalty for our sin, that he took the penalty that was due us, and that he changed us. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And it is nothing that we can do. It is no amount of righteousness, no amount of works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, The word is by grace you are saved through faith, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. It is not anything that we can do, but everything that Christ has done. He has done it on our behalf. And when we try and do it, when we try and be holy, and when we try and be righteous, when we try to to be good enough, our righteousness is, as God says in Isaiah, filthy rags. But we must give it to Christ and trust Him and Him alone. Trust in what He has done. And only after when we have trusted in what He has done does He change our heart. And does our obedience become a fruit of the changed life? James says, you show me your faith without your works, I show you my faith by my works. When Christ changes our heart, then we're able to love as Christ loved. We're able to serve as Christ has called us to serve. So church, I have this question as we close. Have you succumbed to the allure of this world? If you have, let me remind you, the descent into wickedness is not reserved for the wicked. David, a man after God's own heart, succumbed to the allure of this world. And what did he find when he threw himself before the mercy of God? He found a God who abounds in loving kindness and is rich in mercy. He found a God who did not count his sins against him, but he found a God who cast his sins as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more. Church, this morning, don't try and hide your heart, but come to Jesus. Find grace and mercy. Let's pray. God, we know that the allure of this world is indeed powerful. That the allure of this world is tempting. That even the most devout and pious of us succumb. Lord, your word tells us in 1 Corinthians, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. God, this morning, I believe there are those here in your church who have succumbed to the allure of this world. They have allowed, not intentionally, but simply because we live in a fallen world, they have allowed sin to entice them so much so that they become like David. They become like Judas. They've made up their mind. They're going to do that which is evil, that which is wicked. If that's you this morning, let me remind you The words of John 
But if we confess our sin, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. If we say with David, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me, that he will indeed hear our prayer, that he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. Maybe this morning, you're not sitting in the seat of scoffers, but you do realize that you've begun walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Or maybe you've begun standing in the way of sinners. You've not yet succumbed to the full the full consequences of this world, but you see yourselves trending toward that path. Lord, maybe this morning you need to come to this altar and you need to ask God. You need to ask God to renew a right heart within you. Maybe you need to take someone with you down to this altar and maybe you need to ask them to pray for you that that I don't want to end up down this path. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you encourage me? Maybe you find yourself sitting in the seat of scoffers and you need to come to Jesus for forgiveness. You need to give your life to Christ. Maybe you've convinced everybody else that you're righteous, but you need have the blood of Jesus applied to your life. We pray this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would work in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.